Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for this uh, powerful reminder of the truth about Christ who has overcome the grave, has overcome sin for us, has paid the price for us, is alive, a living God who has promised to us eternal life to those who trust in his name, to those who believe in him, to those who follow him, to those who have placed their life in his hands, to those who have made him Lord of their lives. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for this glorious truth, and we sing hallelujah, praise the Lord for what you have done. We pray this morning, Father, as we now turn our attention to your word, that our hearts will be filled to overflowing with a thanksgiving for who, all you are and what you have done and, and what you have given to us in this revelation, the, the Old and New Testament, that we might know how we ought to live, how we ought to conduct ourselves in, this, in these days that we live in. And I pray, Father, that we might take seriously your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. So this morning, what is a deacon? Maybe some of you are saying, who cares? I hope not. And I'll tell you, I, I just want to remind you that we're sort of at the, just past the halfway point of our series called Identity Crisis, which is a series about healthy church. Identity crisis means that you don't know your identity. And right now, I am firmly convinced, and I was firmly convinced when we began this series and contemplated this series and prayed about this series, that the church does not know who it is. We don't understand the details. We've been ignoring what God's Word has said in certain places, and we are when a crisis has arrived like we live in right now, we're not ready for it. We're not prepared. And I'm not sure whether you, whether you know the state of affairs in the world or not, but people are ignoring Christianity or leaving Christianity altogether in droves. The church is not growing in North America. In fact, um, we are right now in the midst of one of the greatest crises in terms of Christianity ever in North America. According to Barna Research, Generation Z, Generation Z south of the border, Z, Generation Z here, same group though, and that, that means the group of people born between 1999 and 2015, all right? So uh, some of those are 22 years old to six years of age. That group. Within that group, there's twice as many atheists as the average of all other adults in all other generations. Twice as many. That's the group that's coming along. The, the group that in droves are turning their back on God and turning their back on Christianity. This is no time for the church to be ho-hum about who we are or to to not care about the precise details and the issues of church and church identity that's been given to us. And by the way, this crisis is not because God has lost his power to save, is it? 
Surely not. Our God has not changed. It's not because the Holy Spirit has lost his power to retain those in the church, is it? No. We have to look elsewhere. And I think it's because the church has lost its identity to attract people to the glorious claims of Jesus Christ. It's because we don't know who we are. We're not really certain. We're not really confident. We're not really convincing. We're not really fired up. We're, we're, we're apathetic. We're a team with no fire for our brand. And we pour water on those who are fired up. I'm not talking, I'm not, I'm not browbeating Calvary Baptist Church this morning. I'm talking in generalities. I'm, I'm just excited beyond measure this morning that we filled up our registrations for this building and we're overflowing big time across the, the street and we're filling up next service. God's people here at Calvary, I think you're getting it, but we are in an identity crisis. There's no question about it. The National Post wrote last week or the week before, I, I'm not sure of the exact date, critiquing churches during COVID for our apathy. This is a secular newspaper, not criticizing us for meeting, criticizing us for not meeting, criticizing us for being apathetic, and, and confirming, as they wrote, the irrelevancy of the church in modern society. We're sending the wrong message. I know of a certain missionary who received a certain message from a church that made their donation to a mission that feeds hungry children by the hundreds in backwater world made their donation contingent on compliance on COVID restrictions. Are you serious? Since when did the church become an agent of the government? Since when do we have the right to withhold God's money? And by the way, if you go on their site and you look at, at their anniversary celebration, all it is is the church eating all the time. And they're making their donation conditional on COVID compliance to hungry children? No wonder the Generation Z is leaving the church in droves. We're not actually who we claim to be. We're just a joke, a, a bunch of actors. Many churches are barely crawling out of their year-long hibernation to get their churches started. <laughs> if this isn't an identity, it's not because God has changed. It's not because the Holy Spirit has lost his power. It's because there's something wrong with the church. There's something wrong with God's people. We aren't fired up, and it starts by getting fired up about who we are and about whose we are and about getting the details right because the details matter to God. Believing in the details matter to God. Well, end of many, many sermon. That's in case you were thinking, who cares about deacons? Everything in God's word should fire us up Everything, 
every opportunity to open God's word and, and read what God has written to us and see the revelation of his details on how we should live should fire us up every time. So let's get fired up about God. Let's get fired up about his word. Let's get fired up about his details. Because I'm excited about what God has to say about deacons. And I can't wait to share it with you this morning. I've been studying some things. And, you know, um, when, when people ask the question, what, what's the role of a deacon? And you ask that on the street, most people would say, I don't even know what a deacon is. What are you even talking about? But sadly, within the church, there's a lot of people, I don't even know what you're talking about. Is, is, is a deacon my political representative at the decision-making table? Oh, Lord, help us if you think that. Is a deacon part of a corporate board of directors representing the shareholders of the corporation? Gasp! Is he the boss of the staff making sure that the pastors are doing their work? I've heard that said before. If you need deacon bosses to make sure your pastors are doing their work, fire your pastors. You got the wrong guys. Can a female be a deacon? Now, wait a second. Now you're stepping. What does the Bible say? Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, please. There's not a lot said about deacons in the scriptures. But I can tell you that... Um, I was doing a little work this week on parallel structures, leadership structures in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, and I discovered some things that were pretty cool that I hadn't really noticed before about the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament in terms of leadership structure. I was quite surprised. So let me share with you what I, no what I noticed. Um, at the very beginning, of course, you have this patriarchal structure in the Abrahamic covenant where the patriarchs were the priests of the families of God's people. But the priesthood goes back very early when you have the, the priest of uh, Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek. But, but that pre patriarchal uh, structural leadership transitioned to Moses and the Sinaitic covenant. And at that point, there was a defined structure established with details in the Old Testament. And those details were that there would be a high priest who was the divine representative. There would be priests who would be functionally responsible for sacrifices in lieu of the coming of Christ, who would be the final sacrifice. And then you had Levites who were assistants to the priests, who had a function of assisting. And interestingly, in Exodus 19.6, the people of God are called a kingdom of priests. So, so this isn't just a New Testament concept. This is a continuity concept. This is how God has always viewed his people as priests with access to the living God, you see. And then, of course, once the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and then through to about 165 A.D., the Maccabean Revolt, there was a transition to synagogues and rabbis who were modern-day Pharisees. And that's what we have today in Judaism. So that's the structure. 
In the New Testament, there's a parallel structure that's established, but it's a little different. The high priest is Jesus. He's now come to be our high priest. No longer is there a human high, uh, 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 human high priest. There's a human divine high priest, Jesus Christ. The functional priests are pastors and elders. And I would submit that the functional Levites are deacons. Who, as in the Cyclopedia of, of, um, of the, the Bible... Uh, point out that these Levites function in the service of the tabernacle, often mundane roles that they practiced. And then, of course, we have the kingdom of priests, 1 Peter 2, 4, 9. That's us, we, we as God's, Christ's body, uh, obedient to the new covenant offerings of which we are now living sacrifices. There's no need for a priesthood to offer sacrifices. Interestingly, when the temple was destroyed and the synagogue system was established, Jews no longer practice sacrifices. Now, of course, the final sacrifices come in Jesus, but they don't believe that. It's rather fascinating that they don't continue the sacrifices in light of the fact that they don't believe Jesus is the final sacrifice. Barnabas was a Levite in Acts chapter 4, 36. So what are we looking at this morning? We're looking at uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, are to be men, worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. There's a, a centerpiece or a key text in the scriptures that I want to launch our study from this morning uh, into the New Testament that really lays out the purpose and responsibility of the church and its officers. In Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, this key verse, this key section says this, and he, meaning Jesus, gave some as pastors, teachers, same office, for the equipping of the saints for the work of, and the word there is diakonia, service or ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. This is a centerpiece verse for understanding church leadership design. Pastors equip the saints to do the work of service or ministry. And that word service or ministry is diakonia. To build up the body of Christ. So equipping is what pastors do. And diakonia is what all the saints do. All of you serve. All of you do ministry to build up the body of Christ. So everybody actually deacons, but some have the office. So deacons show the way. Deacons literally show the way to the saints on how Diakonia works. 
That's why I have entitled the sermon series, this sermon, The Office of Serving Specialist, the Diaconate. Only two places in the scriptures is deacon described or even identified. Philippians 1.1, it's just mentioned there. There's not much detail at all. We only have this section in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. So our discovery for this far in terms of governance is that uh, we, we believe that the Bible teaches most, cl- most closely a congregational style of governance. The church appoints two categories of officers. So the church governs by appointing the officers in the local church. One category specializes in shepherding, that's the pastors. And the other category specializes in serving, that's the deacons. And it was most clearly demonstrated for us here in Ephesus, which is, of course, the city found in the modern country of Turkey. Deacons were formed and founded and detailed most particularly right here. The church in Ephesus gives us the most clear description as Paul writes to Timothy while he was in Ephesus. While, Paul, while Timothy was in Ephesus, Paul was in Macedonia on, on part of his travels. So um, let's unpackage this today, basically the same format we used last week, the same structure we used last week. What's the New Testament evidence for the office of deacon? And I want to start, first of all, by, by asking the question, what does the word mean? Diakonos, or diakonos, however you want to pronounce it. Well, we've already given you a hint and a tip-off in Ephesians 4, 11, 12, But I want you to know that diakonos, when it is a function in the scriptures in the New Testament, and it's used a hundred plus times, simply is translated by the word serve. So when you're reading in your Bibles and you see the word serve in English, almost always it's the word diakonos, almost exclusively. So that's what the word means. But when it is an office, the interpreters of our translation determined to call it deacon, which is not a translation, but is a transliteration. Now, don't glaze over on me like I know this is a grammar moment and I know this is a little weird, but, but I think if you don't get this, this is why there's been a lot of misunderstandings or, or, or people not not clear on what, what's, what we're talking about here. A transliteration is, is simply when you take a word from a foreign language and you phonetically pronounce it in English. So I told you the Greek word is diakonos, deacon. It's, this, it's a word phonetically taken right from Greek and turned into an English word because we don't have an English word deacon. That's not an English word. It's a Greek word. Same as baptize. We don't have an English word baptize. It's been a transliteration of a Greek word. And, and the meaning is important. because, And the reason that those, these words were transliterated is because they did not believe, the interpreters of the, the translators of the scripture did not believe that to translate the word directly into English would give full impact to the, what the word really meant culturally when it was used in this way. So when the word deacon was used in the, in the way of an office, they did not want to translate it simply servant because it might lack the punch 
of what it meant to the culture there. The same with baptize. Baptize means to dip, to dye, to immerse. Never means sprinkle. But the full and powerful meaning, I mean, if you had said, you know, um, go make disciples and dye them in the name of Jesus Christ or dip them in the name of Jesus Christ. It would have been helpful for we Baptists to say we told you so, but that's not what the translators of the scripture did. So they did the same with deacon, okay? So we have to look at the action in order to understand the full implications of the word. And we get, we get an idea in terms of the evidence of the office of deacon because we have to ask, well, where did it originate? Well, we've discovered that in the Old Testament it probably originated from the office of Levite. But we also see that it, trans, it, it moved its way into the New Testament in Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered, meaning the disciples of Christ, gathered all the other disciples who were now followers of Christ together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Most people really believe that the office of deacon had its... its uh, most primitive beginning in the New Testament right here, where this re responsibility of assisting or table waiters or was a deacon prototype. And, and, and uh, some have discovered that, that uh, deacons are wait at widow's table, elder's table, and the Lord's table. And so there is this idea of assisting in these most important realities to free up the original disciples to the word of God in prayer. So the word diakonos is even used in Acts 6, qualifications of certain men required uh, for this responsibility. Why men? Well, if you look at the text in particular, there's two uh, criteria that are specific in verse 12. A deacon must be the husband of one wife and must manage his children well. So we're looking at the similar thing to elders that we studied last week. Once again, I believe the scriptures require males to fit this role, to fill this role, because of these two key qualifications. Remember that the church is modeling the excellence of God. The church is modeling the, the excellence of God's create, creative design. We are placed here to represent God, represent God's ways, represent God's identity to our world. We are role models of God's design. We are not setting some sort of agenda for progressive ideas. It's not what God had in mind for the church. The church is to model the transcultural identity of God's creation design God's model and God's relationship, Christ's relationship to the church. And the, the certain men that are to be chosen for this office are to model excellence in marriage in the way they treat their wife to demonstrate how Christ treats the church. 
and they are to manage their family well because God's church is a household of brothers and sisters. We are a family. The only metaphor, the only management that really works, the only management design that makes any sense is a family management design. The leaders are to be excellent husbands and excellent fathers. That makes it reasonably simple for us to understand what certain men we are looking for as a church in governance to appoint for these roles. Now, this one woman of one wife, I just quickly make a statement because I know there's been some confusion out there. This doesn't mean that you can't, uh, that a widower can't remarry, for instance. That's not what this means. Nor does it mean that someone is automatically excluded or prohibited because they are not married or because they do not have children. These are credentials with which you can measure an individual's qualifications. It just makes it a little more difficult if they aren't married or they don't have children for you to see that aspect of their lives. It doesn't mean that they're prohibited. It doesn't say in the text they're prohibited. But, but, but if they are married, they must be a one-woman type man. Not someone who's leering around at all the women or some sort of womanizer. But this is a, 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 a one-woman kind of guy. That's what you're looking for. That's what makes women particularly acutely um, Uh, qualified to join in the governance of appointing leaders in the church. Because women have an acute sense about this that men don't tend to have the same. Women have an acute sense of whether or not a guy is a genuine guy who is faithful to his wife or is somebody who's wandering around looking for other women. women. Women have a sense of that. And uh, women can tell if a man is a, is a good manager of his household, a good manager of his family. And this is a critical. Now, some people have said, okay, well, what about verse 11? It says in the same way, um, and, and literally, if we were to read this literally, we could read it several ways because the word here is gynekos. In the same way, gynekos are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And some people have said, well, this is another office. This is the office of deaconess. What about 1 Timothy 3.11? Is this deaconess or is this a further qualification of the deacon leaders? Why is it inserted right here, smack dab, in the middle of the qualifications for deacon? Why would, why, what is Paul trying to say here? What is he getting at? We should know. We, we need to know this, right? Don't inquiring minds want to know? Do you want to know? Anybody want to know? You want me just to skip this point and move on? No, no, don't skip this point. All right. So here's the deal here. When you're reading this, this word, their wives, is the word that's used for woman or wife. In In the Greek language, they did not make a distinction. They did not have two different words, wife or woman. It's just one word, gynekos, where we get our gynecology from, gynecos, one word, and it was context always in the conversation or the subject that determined whether you would translate it wife or woman. So in this particular case, we have to ask the question, what does it mean here? Does it mean woman or does it mean wife? If it means woman, then some people are saying, well, maybe there's an office of deaconess. So what's the surrounding context, students? 
The surrounding context is in the elders, we were talking, whenever it uses the word gynecos, it's talking about the wife of the elder. In the, in the deacons, when it uses the word gynecos, which it does again, the husband of one gynecos, it's talking again about wife. So in the context, Paul here has used wife, wife in sandwich, it stands to reason that it's likely he meant wife again. If he didn't mean wife again, he would need to make some total break with context to use a totally different word. And by the way, he could have used a different word. There is the female form of diakonos. In Greek, the words have feminine or masculine or neuter. I don't have this in English, but they do in Greek. And so Paul could have used the word here. If he wanted to say deaconess, he could have said in the same way, deaconesses are to be women worthy of respect. But he doesn't do that. He's used that word before. He used it in Romans, in Romans 16.1. But he hasn't used it here. So I, I would submit to you, and, and I would, I, I think... The evidence, I mean, you can study hard when you ask the question, what did Paul really mean? I would try this on for size. Because, by the way, gynecos never means deaconess, ever. So let's try this on. In the same way, wives or women of leaders must also qualify. That's what I think he's saying here. That's why he embeds it here. He's talking about elders, then he talks about deacons, and then in his thinking he says, you know what, I got to talk about their wives. And I don't think he's just talking about deacons' wives. I think he's talking about officers of the church's wives. Their women, the women of elders, the women of deacons, need also to be a certain kind of woman as part of the qualifications of a deacon. Otherwise, and, and this is the way, of course, the NIV translators have chosen to go. They've already made the decision, yes, in the same way we should translate that, their wives. Forcing the idea of female deacons into this text is again a stretch that is more about cultural sensitivities than it is about biblical actual sensitivities. Keep in mind, our mission, our assignment as a church, we are the manifold wisdom of God's creation and new creation to all who observe the church. That's how we glorify God. By demonstrating the manifold wisdom of God in his creation design and of God in his new creation design, the church and Christ, male and female. And uh, beloved, is it not intuitively and abundantly obvious to us that when that design is ignored, as it is in our culture, that this, it's the disaster out there for you young parents who are going to be taking your children to public school and having to fill out an application that has 13 genders on it or more for you to pick from. Dozens of sexual orientations for you to choose from to put the check mark on beside your child. And by the way, if you choose for them wrong, the school itself may take you to account to our government. Is it not intuitively obvious that the last group standing for sanity in our world is actually the church and the design that God has given to us. If we let this go because of some sort of 
malformed cultural sensitivity. We have lost everything. And I have watched in my generation, my own lifetime, an evangelical denomination take these details that God has given to us and, and, and take an approach, well, you know, maybe they're not so important. Let's not get all fired up about this. Let's, let's be people of a modern look. I have watched them tank in morality over one man's lifetime. So, what men? Well, as you look at the text, these men are entirely dissimilar to the man of the culture. Entirely dissimilar. They are not drunken men. They are not womanizers. They are not partiers. Keep in mind, this was written to Ephesus. Ephesus, if you go and visit Ephesus today, and you see the ancient ruins, everywhere, even engraved in the ancient ruins, is immorality. In their souvenir shops, they're riddled with immorality. In modern, well, it's ancient Ephesus, but in the, in the modern site where, where you can find it. They were, they were uh, drunkards, they were abusers of women, they were partiers. And that's why the emphasis here in the text, Paul writes back to Timothy and says, whatever you do, don't appoint men to be leadership in the church who look like the people on the streets of Ephesus. Whatever you do, they can't be drunkards and they can't be abusers of women and they, they can't be partiers. They, they should not be womanizers. These should be men of high moral standards. They should be entirely dissimilar to the man of the culture. And when I see churches trying to bring into their midst in leadership men more culturally minded, men more cultural, it's the exact opposite of what God has called us to do. Not men of the culture. It doesn't mean men that don't understand the culture. It means men that are not like the culture. But rather, they're to be entirely similar to elders. Entirely similar. Except for teaching and overseeing. That's the only difference. They are to be entirely similar. In, in fact, um, the, the word here, respectful, deacons will be men worthy of respect. That word respectful is semnos, where we get our word seminary from, semnos. That word means reverent, like the title of some of our pastors, like Reverend Rick. Deacons are also to be reverend. So they are to be men of spiritual excellence, examples of spiritual excellence. Now, they can be younger than the elders because they're not elders. So if you're wondering about age, there's no age stipulation that's put on here. It's a quality of, of man. It's not an age stipulation that's placed here. They need to be sincere. That means not double-tongued, not two-faced guys. They don't say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. Why should you know this? Because you're the ones who appoint them. They're, not, they're to be trustworthy, particularly good handlers of money. They don't use the office of deacon for personal gain. They're to be men who, in verse 9, who, who have no conflict in their faith. They're settled in the gospel. They're settled in their convictions. 
Their belief and their actions are not in conflict. You don't hear them say one thing and see them living a different way. They're to be theologically time-tested, verse 10. Theologically time-tested, observed. It's like you assay a metal. When you test a metal to see how firm, how, how pure it is, how right it is, is gold gold or not? Is silver silver or not? You assay the metal. That's that word that's being used here. You, you assay the man to determine whether he actually qualifies as a spirit-filled man of God. That's who a deacon is. What do these men do? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. No, it's a mystery. There's nothing, there's nothing whatsoever in the New Testament that tells us what deacons do. There isn't. If, if you can find something, please tell me. All we know is there's servant specialists. But we have a pretty good idea of what needs to be done in a church, right? So it seems that assisting elders makes sense, assisting the pastors based on, on the record of biblical leadership structures that we have in the Old Testament through the ages. So in this service specialization, it would seem that they, they have a support role, they look after the property and, and the, the assets of the congregation, the, the assembly. They look after the finances of the assembly. They, they are responsible for the needy and to take care of the poor and to make sure the poor are looked after. They're to take care of crisis so that elders can do their job to study the word of God and bring, bring the truth of God's word to you in prayer and, and vision. They're to, to be risk administrators it seems to me that those are the kinds of roles that, that we don't have, you know, in God's infinite wisdom, he didn't give us a playbook for deacons so that they would be free to do many things where they can be of use, use to the congregation. But not shepherding uh, and, and not leadership or oversight over the congregation. That's the elder's responsibility. John Piper, in his book, Rethinking the Governance, writes this, the deacon office exists to assist the leadership of the church by relieving the elders of distractions and pressures that would divert them from the ministry of the word and prayer and the general visionary oversight of the church. If John Piper says it, it's settled, I believe it. It sounds good to me. Caring primarily for the material, physical, temporal, and recently legal needs of the congregation. Important things that elder priorities can't get to, just don't have the time to get to, and are important and must be done, have to be done. So at, at, at Calvary Baptist Church, deacons bear, by the way, I don't know if you know this, they bear the legal responsibility for you. And it's a tremendous responsibility to carry. And you need to thank these men for their willingness to put their own lives in risk, and the risk increases in these days. So we appreciate the deacons very much, and I hope you do, and I hope you thank them. I hope you pray for them, and you love them, and, and you tell them often how thankful you are for them. So what should the church do? Well, I've kind of jumped ahead a little bit. What should you do? Men, the men of this church should make themselves ready and available to possibly be appointed as deacons. Every man here should be making himself available, every member of this congregation. That, that means getting yourself in a position spiritually to be tapped on the shoulder by the Holy Spirit to take this office responsibility. Every man should be doing that. Secondly, you as a congregation should appoint biblically 
qualified men to be deacons. We have a deacon search committee here. All year long, you can be connecting with the deacon search committee, observing men, taking this responsibility that you have seriously, and report men to the deacon search committee who you think should be appointed to this role, this position. You should support their spiritual influence in your lives. They are examples, and you should support that. God endorses this service of leadership very highly, and so should you. You can check that out in verse 13. Those who have served well or literally deaconed well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. You should pray for your deacons. Spiritual work by spiritual men requires us to pray for these men. And then serve with them. Serve with the specialists. Deacon with the deacons. That's what this literally means. Deacon with the deacons. The extent of any church's impact in our world today is based on how full, how, how total, how all in is the congregation itself. We are limited at Calvary only in the reticence you have to serve. As all of you serve with passion and with fire for the Lord, there is no end to what God can accomplish through us. We are limitless in what God can accomplish. But to whom much is given, much is required. So once again, as we leave actually this section of governance, we're finished this with a three-part series on governance. This completes it. Why precision? Because God is a God of detail. You can see that in creation. You can see that in in his design instructions. What culture deems progressive, God sees as rebellion against him. And why wouldn't they progress? They believe in evolution. We don't believe in evolution. We believe in creation. And creation is a detailed, specific design that doesn't change. We shouldn't correct the sin of abuse with the sin of rebellion. If we lapse in our attention to detail, it opens up a pathway to disobedient drift. That's what happens. And worship of God becomes replaced with worship of man. Man's ways, man's ideas, man's improvisations or women's improvisations. That's rebellion against God. That's not worship. We aren't smart enough to reinvent culture. We aren't smart enough to reinvent male and femaleness. This is God's design. And to tamper with these details is to reject God. And so, may God help us to continue to trust and follow his ways. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your instruction to us. Thank you for this beautiful morning that we've had together in your presence, partaking together the special presence of Christ among us, worshiping you, lifting up our hearts and our voices. Oh God, thank you for meeting with us. Gathering God's people, assembling back, bringing people back to the assembly. Oh God, we thank you. And we pray, Father, that we will take very seriously the details of Scripture and realize that we are truly the manifold wisdom of God on this earth demonstrating the wisdom, the brilliance of God in creation, 
the brilliance of God in the new creation. That's how we glorify you. Lord, God help us. God help us to continue to glorify you and to not grow apathetic, but to be fired up for the things of God because a generation is walking away from any interest whatsoever in God. These, these are crisis moments, oh Lord. I pray that you would light a fire in the church of Jesus Christ. For your great name's sake, I pray. Amen and amen.